Chapter five of an essay on the principle of population. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. An essay on the principle of population by Thomas Malthus. Chapter five. The second or positive check to population examined in England. The true cause why the immense sum collected in England for the poor does not better their condition. The powerful tendency of the poor laws to defeat their own purpose. Palliative of the distressed of the poor proposed. The absolute impossibility from the fixed laws of our nature that the pressure of want can ever be completely removed from the lower classes of society. All the checks to population may be resolved into misery or vice. The positive check to population, by which I mean the check that represses an increase which is already begun, is confined chiefly, though not perhaps solely, to the lowest orders of society. This check is not so obvious to common view as the other I have mentioned, and, to prove distinctly, the force and extent of its operation would require, perhaps, more data than we are in possession of but i believe it has been very generally remarked by those who have attended to bills of morality that of the number of children who die annually much too great a proportion belongs to those who may be supposed unable to give their offspring proper food and attention exposed as they are occasionally to severe distress and confined perhaps to unwholesome habitations and hard labour this mortality among the children of the poor has been constantly taken notice of in all towns it certainly does not prevail in an equal degree in the country, but the subject has not hitherto received sufficient attention to enable any one to say that there are not more deaths in proportion among the children of the poor, even in the country, than among those of the middling and higher classes. Indeed, it seems difficult to suppose that a labourer's wife, who has six children, and who is sometimes in absolute want of bread, should be able always to give them the food and attention necessary to support life. The sons and daughters of peasants will not be found such rosy cherubs in real life as they are described to be in romances. It cannot fail to be remarked by those who live much in the country that the sons of labourers are very apt to be stunted in their growth, and are a long while arriving at maturity. Boys that you would guess to be fourteen or fifteen are, upon inquiry, frequently found to be eighteen or nineteen, and the lads who drive plough, which must certainly be a healthy exercise, are very rarely seen with any appearance of calves to their legs a circumstance which can only be attributed to want either of proper or of sufficient nourishment. To remedy the frequent distresses of the common people, the poor laws of England have been instituted, but it is to be feared that though they may have alleviated a little the intensity of individual misfortune, they have spread the general evil over a much larger surface. It is a subject often started in conversation and mentioned always as a matter of great surprise that, notwithstanding the immense sum that is annually collected for the poor in England, there is still so much distress among them. Some think that the money must be embezzled, others that the church wardens and overseers consume the greater part of it in dinners. All agree that somehow or other it must be very ill-managed. In short, the fact that nearly three millions are collected annually for the poor, and yet that their distresses are not removed, is the subject of continual astonishment. But a man who sees a little below the surface of things would be very much more astonished if the fact were otherwise than it is observed to be, or even if a collection universally of eighteen shillings in the pound, instead of four, were materially to alter it. 
I will state a case which I hope will elucidate my meaning. Suppose that by a subscription of the rich the eighteen pence a day which men earn now was made up five shillings. It might be imagined, perhaps, that they would then be able to live comfortably, and have a piece of meat every day for their dinners. But this would be a very false conclusion. The transfer of three shillings and six pence a day to every labourer would not increase the quantity of meat in the country. There is not at present enough for all who have a decent share. What would then be the consequence? The competition among the buyers in the market of meat would rapidly raise the price from six pence or seven pence to two or three shillings in the pound and the commodity would not be divided among many more than it is at present. When an article is scarce, and cannot be distributed to all, he that can show the most valid patent, that is, he that offers most money, becomes the possessor. If we can suppose the competition among the buyers of meat to continue long enough for a greater number of cattle to be reared annually, this could only be done at the expense of the corn, which would be a very disadvantageous exchange, for it is well known that the country could not then support the same population, and when subsistence is scarce in proportion to the number of people, it is of little consequence whether the lowest members of the society possess eighteen pence or five shillings. They must at all events be reduced to live upon the hardest fare and in the smallest quantity. It will be said, perhaps, that the increased number of purchasers in every article would give a spur to productive industry, and that the whole produce of the island would be increased. This might in some degree be the case, but the spur that these fancied riches would give to population would more than counterbalance it, and the increased produce would be to be divided among a more than proportionably increased number of people. All this time I am supposing that the same quantity of work would be done as before. But this would not really take place. The receipt of five shillings a day, instead of eighteen pence, would make every man fancy himself comparatively rich, and able to indulge himself in many hours or days of leisure. This would give a strong and immediate check to productive industry, and, in a short time, not only the nation would be poorer, but the lower classes themselves would be much more distressed than when they received only eighteen pence a day. A collection from the rich of eighteen shillings in the pound, even if distributed in the most judicious manner, would have a little the same effect as that resulting from the supposition I have just made, and no possible contributions or sacrifices of the rich, particularly in money, could for any time prevent the recurrence of distress among the lower members of society, whoever they were. Great changes might, indeed, be made. The rich might become poor, and some of the poor rich, but a part of the society must necessarily feel a difficulty of living, and this difficulty will naturally fall on the least fortunate members. It may at first appear strange, but I believe it is true, that I cannot by means of money raise a poor man and enable him to live much better than he did before, without proportionably depressing others in the same class. If I retrench the quantity of food consumed in my house, and give him what I have cut off, and then benefit him, without depressing any but myself and family, who, perhaps, may be well able to bear it. If I turn up a piece of uncultivated land, and give him the produce, I then benefit both him and all the members of the society, because what he before consumed is thrown into the common stock, and probably some of the new produce with it. But, if I only give him money, supposing the produce of the country to remain the same, I give him a title to a larger share of that produce than formerly which share he cannot receive without diminishing the shares of others. It is evident that this effect, in individual instances, must be so small as to be totally imperceptible, but still it must exist, 
as many other effects do, which, like some of the insects that people the air, elude our grosser perceptions. Supposing the quantity of food in any country to remain the same for many years together, it is evident that this food must be divided according to the value of each man's patent, or the sum of money that he can afford to spend on this commodity so universally in request. Mr. Godwin calls the wealth that a man receives from his ancestors a mouldy patent. It may, I think, very properly be termed a patent, but I hardly see the propriety of calling it a mouldy one, as it is an article in such constant use. It is a demonstrative truth, therefore, that the patents of one set of men could not be increased in value without diminishing the value of the patents of some other set of men. If the rich were to subscribe and give five shillings a day to five hundred thousand men without retrenching their own tables, no doubt can exist that as these men would naturally live more at their ease and consume a greater quantity of provisions, there would be less food remaining to divide among the rest, and consequently each man's patent would be diminished in value or the same number of pieces of silver would purchase a smaller quantity of subsistence. An increase of population without a proportional increase of food will evidently have the same effect in lowering the value of each man's patent. The food must necessarily be distributed in smaller quantities, and consequently a day's labour will purchase a smaller quantity of provisions. An increase in the price of provisions would arise either from an increase of population faster than the means of subsistence, or from a different distribution of the money of the society. The food of a country that has been long occupied, if it be increasing, increases slowly and regularly, and cannot be made to answer any sudden demands, but variations in the distribution of the money of a society are not infrequently occurring, and are undoubtedly among the causes that occasion the continual variations which we observe in the price of provisions. The poor laws of England tend to depress the general condition of the poor in these two ways. Their first obvious tendency is to increase population without increasing the food for its support. A poor man may marry with little or no prospect of being able to support a family in independence. They may be said, therefore, in some measure to create the poor which they maintain. And as the provisions of the country must, in consequence of the increased population, be distributed to every man in smaller proportions, it is evident that the labour of those who are not supported by parish assistance will purchase a smaller quantity of provisions than before, and consequently more of them must be driven to ask for support. Secondly, the quantity of provisions consumed in workhouses upon a part of the society that cannot in general be considered as the most valuable part diminishes the share that would otherwise belong to more industrious and more worthy members, and thus, in the same manner, forces more to become dependent. If the poor in the workhouses were to live better than they now do, this new distribution of the money of the society would tend more conspicuously to depress the condition of those out of the workhouses by occasioning a rise in the price of provisions. Fortunately for England, a spirit of independence still remains among the peasantry. The poor laws are strongly calculated to eradicate this spirit. They have succeeded in part, but had they succeeded as completely as might have been expected, their pernicious tendency would not have been so long concealed. Hard as it may appear in individual instances, dependent poverty ought to be held disgraceful. Such a stimulus seems to be absolutely necessary to promote the happiness of the great mass of mankind, and every general attempt to weaken this stimulus, however benevolent its apparent intention, will always defeat its own purpose. If men are induced to marry from a prospect of parish provision, with little or no chance of maintaining their families in independence, they are not only unjustly tempted to bring unhappiness and dependence upon themselves and children, but they are tempted, without knowing it, to injure all in the same class with themselves. 
a labourer who marries without being able to support a family may in some respects be considered as an enemy to all his fellow labourers i feel no doubt whatever that the parish laws of england have contributed to raise the price of provisions and to lower the real price of labour they have therefore contributed to impoverish that class of people whose only possession is their labour it is also difficult to suppose that they have not powerfully contributed to generate that carelessness and want of frugality observed among the poor so contrary to the disposition frequently to be remarked among petty tradesmen and small farmers the labouring poor to use a vulgar expression seem always to live from hand to mouth their present wants employ their whole attention and they seldom think of the future even when they have an opportunity of saving they seldom exercise it but all that is beyond their present necessities goes generally speaking to the alehouse the poor laws of england may therefore be said to diminish both the power and the will to save among the common people and thus to weaken one of the strongest incentives to sobriety and industry and consequently to happiness it is a general complaint among master manufacturers that high wages ruin all their workmen but it is difficult to conceive that these men would not save a part of their high wages for the future support of their families instead of spending it in drunkenness and dissipation if they did not rely on parish assistance for support in case of accidents and that the poor employed in manufactures consider this assistance as a reason why they may spend all the wages they earn and enjoy themselves while they can appears to be evident from the number of families that upon failure of any great manufactory immediately fall upon the parish when perhaps the wages earned in this manufactory while it flourished were sufficiently above the price of common country labour to have allowed them to save enough for their support till they could find some other channel for their industry a man who might not be deterred from going to the alehouse from the consideration that on his death or sickness he should leave his wife and family upon the parish might yet hesitate in thus dissipating his earnings if he were assured that in either of these cases his family must starve or be left to the support of casual bounty in china where the real as well as nominal price of labour is very low sons are yet obliged by law to support their aged and helpless parents whether such a law would be advisable in this country i will not pretend to determine but it seems at any rate highly improper by positive institutions which render dependent poverty so general to weaken that disgrace which for the best and most humane reasons ought to attach to it the mass of happiness among the common people cannot but be diminished when one of the strongest checks to idleness and dissipation is thus removed and when men are thus allured to marry with little or no prospect of being able to maintain a family in independence every obstacle in the way of marriage must undoubtedly be considered as a species of unhappiness but as from the laws of our nature some check to population must exist it is better that it should be checked from a foresight of the difficulties attending a family and the fear of dependent poverty than that it should be encouraged only to be repressed afterwards by want and sickness it should be remembered always that there is an essential difference between food and those wrought commodities the raw materials of which are in great plenty a demand for these last will not fail to create them in as great a quantity as they are wanted the demand for food has by no means the same creative power in a country where all the fertile spots have been seized high offers are necessary to encourage the farmer to lay his dressing on a land from which he cannot expect a profitable return for some years and before the prospect of advantage is sufficiently great to encourage this sort of agricultural enterprise and while the new produce is rising great distresses may be suffered from the want of it the demand for an increased quantity of subsistence is with few exceptions constant everywhere yet we see how slowly it is answered in all those countries that have been long occupied 
The poor laws of England were undoubtedly instituted for the most benevolent purpose, but there is great reason to think that they have not succeeded in their intention. They certainly mitigate some cases of very severe distress which might otherwise occur, yet the state of the poor who are supported by parishes, considered in all its circumstances, is very far from being free from misery. But one of the principal objections to them is that for this assistance which some of the poor receive, in itself almost a doubtful blessing, the whole class of the common people of England is subjected to a set of grating, inconvenient, and tyrannical laws, totally inconsistent with the genuine spirit of the Constitution. The whole business of settlements, even in its present amended state, is utterly contradictory to all ideas of freedom. The parish persecution of men whose families are likely to become chargeable, and of poor women who are near lying in, is a most disgraceful and disgusting tyranny, and the obstructions continually occasioned in the market of labour by these laws have a constant tendency to add to the difficulties of those who are struggling to support themselves without assistance. These evils attendant on the poor laws are in some degree irremediable. If assistance be to be distributed to a certain class of people, a power must be given somewhere of discriminating the proper objects and of managing the concerns of the institutions that are necessary. But any great interference with the affairs of other people is a species of tyranny, and in the common course of things the exercise of this power may be expected to become grating to those who are driven to ask for support. The tyranny of justices, church-wardens, and overseers is a common complaint among the poor, but the fault does not lie so much in these persons, who probably, before they were in power, were not worse than other people, but in the nature of all such institutions. The evil is perhaps gone too far to be remedied, but I feel little doubt in my own mind that if the poor laws had never existed, though there might have been a few more instances of very severe distress, yet that the aggregate mass of happiness among the common people would have been much greater than it is at present. Mr. Pitt's poor bill has the appearance of being framed with benevolent intentions, and the clamour raised against it was in many respects ill-directed and unreasonable, but it must be confessed that it possesses in a high degree the great and radical defect of all systems of the kind, that of tending to increase population without increasing the means for its support, and thus to depress the condition of those that are not supported by parishes, and, consequently, to create more poor. To remove the wants of the lower classes of society is indeed an arduous task. The truth is that the pressure of distress on this part of a community is an evil so deeply seated that no human ingenuity can reach it. Were I to propose a palliative, and palliatives are all that the nature of the case will admit, it should be, in the first place, the total abolition of all the present parish laws. This would at any rate give liberty and freedom of action to the peasantry of England, which they can hardly be said to possess at present. They would then be able to settle without interruption, wherever there was a prospect of a greater plenty of work and a higher price for labour. The market of labour would then be free, and those obstacles removed which, as things are now, often for a considerable time, prevent the price from rising according to the demand. Secondly, premiums might be given for turning up fresh land, and if possible, encouragements held out to agriculture above manufactures, and to tillage above grazing. Every endeavour should be used to weaken and destroy all those institutions relating to corporations, 
apprenticeships, etc., which cause the labours of agriculture to be worse paid than the labours of trade and manufactures, for a country can never produce its proper quantity of food, while these distinctions remain in favour of artisans. Such encouragements to agriculture would tend to furnish the market with an increasing quantity of healthy work, and at the same time, by augmenting the produce of the country, would raise the comparative price of labour, and ameliorate the condition of the labourer. Being now in present circumstances, and seeing no prospect of parish assistance, he would be more able, as well as more inclined, to enter into associations for providing against the sickness of himself or family. Lastly, for cases of extreme distress, county workhouses might be established, supported by rates upon the whole kingdom, and free for persons of all counties, and indeed of all nations. The fare should be hard, and those that were able obliged to work. It would be desirable that they should not be considered as comfortable asylums in all difficulties, but merely as places where severe distress might find some alleviation. A part of these houses might be separated, or others built for a most beneficial purpose, which has not been infrequently taken notice of, that of providing a place where any person, whether native or foreigner, might do a day's work at all times, and receive the market price for it. Many cases would undoubtedly be left for the exertion of individual benevolence. A plan of this kind, the preliminary of which should be an abolition of all the present parish laws, seems to be the best calculated to increase the mass of happiness among the common people of England. To prevent the recurrence of misery is, alas, beyond the power of man. In the vain endeavour to attain what in the nature of things is impossible, we now sacrifice not only possible, but certain benefits. We tell the common people that if they will submit to a code of tyrannical regulations, they shall never be in want. They do submit to these regulations, they perform their part of the contract, but we do not, nay cannot, perform ours, and thus the poor sacrifice the valuable blessing of liberty, and receive nothing that can be called an equivalent in return. Notwithstanding, then, the institution of the poor laws in England, I think it will be allowed that considering the state of the lower classes altogether, both in the towns and in the country, the distresses which they suffer from the want of proper and sufficient food, from hard labour and unwholesome habitations, must operate as a constant check to incipient population. To these two great checks to population, in all long-occupied countries, which I have called the preventative and positive checks, may be added vicious customs with respect to women great cities, unwholesome manufactures, luxury, pestilence, and war. All these checks may be fairly resolved into misery and vice, and that these are the true causes of the slow increase of population in all the states of modern Europe will appear sufficiently evident from the comparatively rapid increase that has invariably taken place whenever these causes have been in any considerable degree removed. End of chapter 5 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards